0: Explore the night skies with our large range of high-quality telescopes. Whether you're a novice or an astronomy expert, we have the right telescope for you in our Australian Geographic eStore. Explore the whole range and find the right telescope for you today. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote. On this episode of Talking Australia, I'm chatting to Tyson Junker-Porter. In 2019, Tyson published Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World, in which he examines global systems from an Indigenous perspective. Tyson tells us about how lines, symbols and shapes can help us make sense of the world, why we need to listen more carefully and look at accepted norms from a different perspective. So I'm really excited to be chatting to Tyson today on this episode of Talking Australia. Sand Talk was published in 2019 to immense critical acclaim. Um, For those who haven't yet read the book, give us a bit of a rundown about, you know, what it's about.
1: Um, Well, the title of the book, Sand Talk, it refers to uh, an Indigenous uh, way of uh, creating, producing, transmitting, storing knowledge, Uh, but mostly passing knowledge on by um, uh, creating images, Uh, usually temporary images and often drawn on the ground. Um, You know, often even just with a stick or a finger in the sand um, in that way, but um, sometimes it uses other objects. Uh, And there there are sort of just everyday forms of that, but then there's big uh, ritual forms as well that are sort of in more secret ceremonies. Uh, but the protocol is that you have to wipe it away um, as soon as you're finished. Um, so that's that's the idea of what Sand Talk is. But Sand Talk itself, the book, it's about, it, it kind of uh, expands the idea of what a book can be. How would you write a book that was um, trying to go beyond the limits of what print can do? Um, yeah, so it's kind of trying to turn it more into a... Um, uh, conversation with with the reader you know uh, doing a series of thought experiments together and um uh using various sort of little language devices and and things like that uh but it also uses the visual images the sand talk images um which uh convey just as much information as you know printed on the pages um and also for each every chapter is is um composed first uh, through traditional activities, Uh, mostly in these cases, um, uh, carving. So the chapters are composed um, by carving uh, traditional objects. And uh, then basically each chapter is a translation of part of the knowledge that's in that uh, traditional object. Um, So it's a very interactive, kinesthetic, um, almost topographical Um, you know, it's very place-based. There are sort of inner maps that we, we go along together, um, you know, in a little kinship pair myself and, and the reader. So, you know, um, so I, I use a, a pronoun that isn't present in English. It's in Aboriginal, uh, Aboriginal languages and it's, uh, linguists call it the, the dual first person plural, um, and I've translated that into English as "us too", hyphenated, which was nearly the title of the book. So you know, um, as far as I know, it's the first book ever that's been written in the dual first-person plural. Um, yeah, so it's it's basically a lot of really interesting stuff like that that changes what a book can can be, and um, and therefore is able to explore a lot a lot of very very interesting very deep knowledge you know in a collaborative way so it sort of brings the, uh, the stories these Aboriginal stories alongside the stories of the reader you know so it's dialogical in that way there's just as much information that the reader is bringing to the process as uh, as the writer is bringing
0: And obviously, it it talks a lot about, you know, how um, Indigenous thinking can save the world. Uh, And, you know, give me a little bit of background about you and how you came to writing a book like that.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the problems that uh, we're facing in the world um, over this last particularly half century that we've been living in, they're they're very, very complex problems. So you need very complex ways of thinking to, um, to look at them and to deal with them. And so I guess that's what uh, this book is offering is is the kind of thinking that's needed to come up with sustainability problems, to come up even with a definition of sustainability that's real. Um, I found myself very frustrated with the way that word's been used. And I think the turning point for me was, was being, um, you know, the indigenous representative at a big um, meeting Um, which was the topic of the meeting was, uh, how can we sustainably double this city's population in the next 10 years? Oh, wow, (laughs) yeah, and I was just like, yeah, you got a bad definition of sustainable (laughs) there, buddy. (laughs) Um, yeah, so that was a bit of a turning point for me. Um, but the book itself, I mean. I don't know I, I I've just been I've been doing this work just mostly in conversations with people and um you know talking to large groups of people small groups of people for over a decade now um and I hadn't even thought of writing a book um but I was approached by the publisher and asked to write one and um they said oh, we will give you a cash advance <laughs> and I said yeah I need that <laughs> cash So, um, yeah, that's how the book came about.
0: Mm. And one of the biggest takeaways from the book for me was, you know, all the different ways Indigenous knowledge can be applied to the education and financial systems um, rather than what you call isolated examples of sustainability. Yeah. Um, And you also say that you want to sort of reverse that phenomenon that you were actually just speaking about. How do you do that?
1: (laughs) How do you do that? Um, (laughs) Well, that's just it. It's a... With most other fields of knowledge, people don't have a problem with the idea of transferability, but for some reason with Indigenous knowledge, um, you know, people find it impossible to look at the the processes, uh, the reasoning, the logics, uh, the structures, um you know, the the, the paradigms, the things like that that can be transferable across to pretty much any other context. Um, for some reason, those things are invisible, you know, to most people, um, Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people. And I think it's because we've all come to position anything Indigenous as this kind of artifact frozen in time, um, as this bit of primitive exotica. So, you know, the idea of... Um, um, you know looking at in <laughs> like it, 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 you know you, you would look therefore at a band of people uh, moving across the landscape and you'd be looking at oh what are they hunting what are they eating how are they cooking it what well, you're not look for some reason nobody's looking at what their governance models are um, that's obviously a group that has found a way um, to exist together you know using some quite exciting um you know, leadership and, and governance models um, that are you know like a kind of super democracy or something, um, and and those sorts of patterns are very transferable, very useful, and are, are probably um, of more use to sustainability systems than you know. So what can goanna fat be used for? Um, you know that there's you know that that kind of declarative indigenous knowledge, like you know. Uh, where can I find a tree sap that will cure a headache? You know, that, that's, that's important too. But we know that that's present and people are looking at that. What people aren't looking at are the, the frameworks, the models, the, um, the theories um, the, and, and the methodologies. So, you know, what does an indigenous method of inquiry look like? And what can that bring to your scientific method? Um, to make it more effective. Um, you know, and I've done this quite a bit with in a few different contexts, you know, where, um, you know, uh, uh, people are, are performing the same experiment. They have a hypothesis, but they, but um, every time they do it, they get different results. And so it's not um, replicable, it's not generalizable, and, um, and they have to just go inconclusive. But then you know I can come in and apply a few uh, variables that are a focus of indigenous inquiry and completely change uh, the outcomes of their experiments um, because it turns out there are a couple of key things they were missing. Um, yeah, so to me this this is the um, the really important and really urgent um, kind of indigenous knowledge that we need to be working with and embracing um, in order to solve the uh, wicked problems that are facing us in the world.
0: And just for those who haven't read the book, what are some of those big problems that you analyse and, you know, the way that you apply Indigenous knowledge to solving those? Like I mentioned my favourite parts were, you know, the education and financial systems.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. So, the, uh, yes, the education systems. Um, the, <laughs> applying our, um, you know, our pedagogies and knowledge transmission methods to the education system Um, Unfortunately, Indigenous pedagogies will only lead you you to a place where you have to completely reimagine from top to bottom what the education system looks like, Um, which strangely enough has been a weird idea that hasn't gained much much traction until the last few months. (laughs) When almost everything is on the table now, you know, um, from universal basic incomes to to um uh, debt jubilees you know there's insane ideas you know even in the financial system like that that um
0: yeah COVID's really brought out a lot of these conversations yeah,
1: people wouldn't countenance the ideas before they were crazy ideas but now they seem very very sane um same with the education so with the education system as soon as everyone was on lockdown and um you know they realized we've been sitting on this technology for you know, decades now that, that would allow students to access learning from anywhere on the planet at any time of day and, you know, that they'd be able to be completely, um, um, you know, independent <laughs> learners, free-ranging through a universe of knowledge <laughs> with, you know, any kind of mentor in any imaginable discipline from anywhere in the world. Um, we've been sitting on that tech for ages and it has not changed one iota of what the education system can be. Um, yeah. And then all of a sudden, all the kids are on lockdown. And, you know, in the first couple of weeks, everyone realized that they were completing all of their their schoolwork for the day in about an hour and then just playing. Um, <laughs> so they had to go, oh, that's no good. We're going to have to sit them in front of the screen and keep our eyeballs on them um, and, and make sure we can see their eyeballs, which is incidentally, historically, where the word pupil came from for students was the idea of a teacher standing at the front of a massive room full of rows of desks and dominating the room uh, with the pupils. That, that's how, <laughs> so the idea was if you could see the pupils of the student's eyes, then you were able to control them and dominate them with your stare and then if that didn't work, then you hit them with a stick um, and, and nothing's changed. So we've got, we've got technology is, is coming out now out of, um, out of the UK and out of the US, out of the big uh, universities there and getting lots and lots, like billions in funding, uh, particularly from people who are interested in data mining. Um, so they've got neural nets now that they can put on students where you can read the student's brain activity in real time. Only the teacher can see that, though, because it's projected as a hologram. Above the student's head, that the teacher only the teacher can see because they're wearing special glasses. Um, that's one of the technologies <laughs> that's coming out. And the idea is that all the students' brain activity will be uploaded to servers in real time, um, because that's really essential data. So students, um, p- these pupils, their um, you know their function will be to provide data for AI to graze on <laughs> into the future. But what's amazing with all these. This amazing new AI tech that they're bringing into revolutionize education. Every photo I see of the test subjects, the test classrooms, this the classrooms still look the same. The students are sitting at their desks in rows with a teacher at the front and the students are doing worksheets. The tech is not there <laughs> to expand for the students what they can learn and what can be known. Um, you know, knowledge is not being given to the students. It's being extracted from them. <laughs> and um, it's just it's just a continuation of what education's always done. So in the same way that now we force the kids to still sit for seven hours in front of the screen and, and look at their teacher via Zoom um, so that the teacher can slow down the pace at which they do their work and stretch an hour's worth of work out to a full day. Um, yeah, because basically in the end... You know, the, the purpose of education is to um, prepare students to become docile workers um, for a workplace. And that is, it's openly stated as the, as the, the main exit goal for education. Um, so that's what we've got. <laughs> and that's all it's going to be no matter what the tech does. It's, um, it's always going to be these poor students sitting in low rows and learning how to do busy work. Um, so that they can sell their time to people, you know, um, a full day of it.
0: Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Plus, you will also receive exclusive benefits, including 10% off all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au Forward slash talking Australia for our special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. What I really appreciate about the book so much is that you do give so much context to um, these systems that, to be honest, like I hadn't really given a lot of thought about. Um, mm. You know, a lot of the book talks about how society struggles to look back and connect to the dots and where we come from and, you know, um, how we have the systems that we have now. Can you tell me about that line of thinking about the need for context and, you know, how maybe our lack of um, or, you know, maybe the fact that we don't look back as much um, is impacting society and, you know, how that manifests itself in today's issues? Well,
1: I I think... (laughs) Every society does this, but, but, you know, this society is looking back. It is constantly looking back, sort of creating these fantastical stories about the past or selectively uh, piecing together these histories. Um, But that's something that that civilization does. It controls the present by controlling what people know of the past. So, um, you know, most of the systems we have in place from law and order to finance to education, Uh, to medicine, to science, to everything else, is all grounded in this sort of myth of progress and this myth of primitivism and this story about a primitive past, um, which can be changed at a moment's notice as needed. But basically the story is that, you know, we've been monkeys that have been wandering around for half a million years um, going, you know, ogre booger and, and just, you know, endlessly raping and murdering each other until finally, you know, civilization came along and saved us from ourselves, <laughs> um, you know, and that we've had this this history of of just stupidity and, and just walking around in absolute fear because we never know when the tigers are going to jump out at us in nature. Um, <laughs> it's just all of it's such a lie. Like you spend time with any indigenous culture anywhere and you'll find that Nobody's worried about the tigers because you're so embedded in the landscape that you know where the tigers are. You always know where the tigers are. There are indicators. There's a lot of complex thinking and very complex uh, culture, far more complex than what we're, um, what we're living in today. Um, and that's how we manage to grow this massive brain that we have with the potential for trillions of neural connections. But I guess, you know, that, that story of our primitive, brutish, paleolithic past is, I mean, it's always changed as facts need to change. Um, so for example, I mean, we were always told the story until very recently, the last few years, that um, Neanderthals had this tiny brain and were basically just like monkeys. And, you know, that they were sort of hairy and dull and didn't live for very long. And that story persisted right up until they they made that discovery just a few years ago that um, that all Europeans um, have Neanderthal DNA, um, you know, up to five percent. I think they were saying Neanderthal DNA, and then. Like, within weeks, all these new stories... Like, they actually just went into the cupboards and pulled out all the stuff that didn't fit the story and just went, look, look, the skulls are bigger. The brains are actually bigger than... <laughs> bigger than any other species ever. Look at that, you know? The Neanderthal brain was huge. And, and look, they actually lived for quite a long... And we're finding that, yeah, Neanderthals actually live quite a sophisticated <laughs> lifestyle. Um, You know, so those parts of the stories changed. But... um also, but other parts didn't. It's very selective. So, for example, the things that reinforce gender roles um, and particularly the position of women in, in the society, they were kind of glossed over. So the fact that um, that uh, Paleolithic women, um, uh, specifically Neanderthal women, had the same uh, patterns, uh, fracture patterns in their bones as the males did Um, that would indicate that women were hunting too. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because it's firmly established that those fracture patterns, which are similar to the fracture patterns of rodeo clowns, um, were from hunting megafauna in a particular place. And the women had the same fracture patterns, but those findings didn't come out. didn't come out, oh my goodness, this idea of men were the hunters and women were the gatherers is actually... um, not true. Women were hunting just as much as men, um, and also they kind of glossed over the age of a lot of the. So they were finding, you know, people in extreme old age, um, even people who'd been born uh, disabled, and would have had to have been carried about and looked after, were um, were living to a very old age. So that would mean that there was a a kind of abundance there and there was a a very advanced culture where people were caring for each other, but also that people were so healthy that they were living for very long periods. And you put that alongside the the bone fracture patterns. It obviously wasn't only the fittest survive. If you break your leg, you're left behind and you die kind of thing. I mean, obviously, people had quite advanced and superior medicine. Uh, so they were able to heal quickly. They had very good diets, and kind of advanced uh, care systems and things like this. Um, you know, all these things are looked over, uh, over. But you see that a lot of the same things. There's always a, an evolutionary explanation to any scientific theory, uh, not just scientific theory, but anything like like law and order. You know, people go well. You know, we have to have these. You know, these policing structures in place because without it people will descend into anarchy and no woman will be safe. Everybody will be just raping everybody and murdering everybody because that's what humans do. Um, You know, it'll be just like, you know, and that's just an evolutionary thing. That's just the fittest survive thing that's coming out of our caveman ancestry. And it's like, well, actually, no, that's not what we're like naturally. So that doesn't really justify those measures you're taking. Um, So, yeah, it is worth, Actually looking at, you know, what we call indigenous now, but is just human. It is worth looking at at what those um, patterns of logic and those ways of thinking and those ways of structuring a society have been for most of human history and have worked really well for most of human history and allowed us to thrive through massive cycles of climate change and meteor strikes and and, and volcanic eruptions and everything else. You know, we've been an incredibly adaptive, incredibly uh, just amazing cultures of genius all over this planet that we've had for most of human history. And now we're this industrialized, domesticated thing <laughs> that, that really just doesn't have the capacity to, um, to organize or think or sustain anything it is worth revisiting. Um, And it doesn't mean returning to, oh, we've all got to be bloody hunting mammoths on the tundra. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, I'm talking about taking those patterns of logic and and those social uh, patterns and those ways of being, living a life that is embedded in the landscape and is responsive to the habitats we live in. Um, Those things can be transferred and applied
0: Particularly with regard to um, Indigenous Australia and the need for context, I mean, how do you get, what's the best way to give context and um, allow people to understand, um, you know, histories that are uh, true? And, uh, I mean, how do we give people context? What's the best yeah. way, in your opinion?
1: Well, I, I think it, it's <laughs> it's going to involve, like, uh, shifting, shifting things around, particularly intent, I mean, so what's the intent of of sharing knowledge about Indigenous people that makes us look good? What's the reason for that, you know? And the reasoning behind it is, um, it seems nice. It's these social justice sort of principles. It's this idea that, you know, if we can uh, show people how, how lovely Indigenous culture is, um, that there will be enough respect that, that suddenly, you know, this uh, colony, this civilization here will um, suddenly just become f- more fair, uh, will treat us better, will treat everybody equally and, you know, will reform, um, you know, will basically just redistribute things around a little bit, but then continue as normal, but everybody's equal. I think that's the intent behind the sharing of a lot of these this knowledge. Uh, behind the the truth-telling of history and and things like this. So, of course, there's going to be a struggle back and forth because the people who are in the civilization and benefiting from it, you know, within the dominant culture, you know, this represents an existential risk. This is not an economic system, and any economist will tell you this. It's not an economic system um, that can continue and that can thrive if equality actually becomes a real thing. This is an economic system that depends on inequality. And it basically comes down to the economic problem. It's in the first chapter of every economics textbook 101. You know, the economic problem is that in a growth-based economy, um, demand must exceed supply. So there needs to be more people needing things than there are things. So you have to limit the supply in order for anything and deny you know, half the population equitable access to that supply uh, in order for anything to have value in, and in order for, for there to be economic growth. So the idea that you can just turn around and, and, and just suddenly go, oh, but they're really nice people and, and oh, we can respect them and, and then everything will be equal, <laughs> it's, it's a ridiculous idea. And so it's an existential risk to the civilization to acknowledge um, aboriginal culture and history or indeed the cultures and histories of uh, anybody that's not from that's not an embedded part of the anglosphere um, ethnically anglo
0: Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Plus, you will also receive exclusive benefits, including 10% off all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au. au forward slash talking australia for our special offer that's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking australia I want to go back to something you said about um, growth-based economic systems. Um, I know you've—I've heard you speak a lot about um, growth-based systems versus an increased system, which is um, uh, more yeah. more based on indigenous knowledge and um, the way of and the way of seeing the world. So, would you be able to like map out those differences?
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, we—I think we've got a, a pretty good handle on what a growth-based economic system is. You know, if a um, if growth slows, you find yourself in a recession. If growth stops, you know, or reverses even, um, you have yourself in a depression, such as the the, the 10-year depression we're coming into right now. Um, <clears throat> that's in a growth-based economic system. And that's that paradigm. Um, but the indigenous uh, economic system, um, and indeed just Uh, ontological, you know, existential system is an increased paradigm. And that sounds like the same thing, growth and increase, but it's actually very different. In an increased paradigm, you're not trying to increase the size of the system. You're trying to increase the connections within it. So it's the same. If you want to become smarter, you do not need to get a bigger brain. Uh, You just need to increase the neural connections and activity that's happening in your brain or make them more efficient, you know. So you've got the potential for trillions of neural connections in in your brain right now, and you're only really using uh, 5 to 15% of those. Uh, And it's the same with an economic system, you know. So what would be of more interest to us uh, from an Aboriginal point of view, um, we wouldn't be interested in quantitative easing as a response to an economic crisis. We'd probably be more... Interested in a thought experiment about well, what would qualitative easing look like? So for example, how could we increase the velocity of the dollar? Rather than printing more of the amount of dollars that are out there, we'd be thinking like, hmm, how could we um, make sure that each dollar is, is changing hands and being exchanged um, 10 times as many times as, 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 as is going on right now. You know, so you <clears throat> you give a dollar to a cab driver who then buys a cup of coffee with it. And then, um, you know, um, in the cafe that's that's then paid as cash wages to <laughs> a casual employer who, who then goes out and and buys themselves a pizza with that, um, you know, and then the, the pizza shop owner uses that dollar for something. And so the dollar, you know, goes through, you know, thousands of different exchanges, uh, first before it ends up, you know, being redirected into a static heap, um, you know, as taxation or, um, or savings or, you know, uh, worse being ended up being sucked into the financial system, the global financial system of money on money return, you know, uh, disappearing into, you know, this, 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 uh, Financial class, um, you know, <laughs> uh, basically just um, you know creating value out of nothing, which ends up just being a, a pyramid scheme, uh, where you know all the dollars of the people at the bottom of the pyramid, of course, end up disappearing like smoke. Uh, so that's the that's the kind of you know application of the of that logic. See, are you getting there? Yeah, I hope I'm getting across the idea that you know this knowledge is transferable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: not just, you know, how to cook, uh, how to cook a possum.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, it's, um, you know, <laughs> how to fix a global financial crisis. <laughs> mm.
0: Which yeah. actually goes perfectly into my next question. Um, I know following the bushfires, there was a kind of um, an increased interest in applying Indigenous knowledge to the fight against climate change. Um, I'm wondering... Going back to what you said before about, um, I guess, tokenistic approaches to applying Indigenous knowledge and the need for white people to kind of be willing to give up certain things, um, yeah. I'm wondering how we might apply Indigenous knowledge to the climate change crisis in a meaningful way.
1: I guess for a start, if you were, if you were really uh, applying Indigenous logic to it, you would, um, you would get rid of this false separation of, of the idea of climate and weather. I know that sounds like a really out-of-the-box and (laughs) off-topic idea, but, you know, climate and weather are are regarded as two different things. You know, um, so, you know, weather is something that just happens and we move with it. Um, When I say we, I mean, you know, human beings living in this society. And then, but then climate in this current, uh, you know, societal paradigm, this global scientific paradigm, climate is something that... um, can be reduced to a number of units. Uh, it can be measured. Um, it can be scaled. It can be predictable, um, and it can be tinkered with. You know. So there's this idea that we can we can tinker with the climate and change the outcomes. Um, as you can see, you. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's a reason that econometrics models. Um, were used as the basis and all that software was used as the basis for a lot of climate modeling. Uh, <laughs> cause it's, it's the same, uh, it's, it's based on the same illusion, that idea that you can, you know, reduce something to a number of parts, um, uh, tinker with it and, um, and, you know, produce the desired outcomes that you want. Uh, we could probably stop looking at it like that. Um, And yes, we need to recognize that um, the pollution that we're creating is having an effect on the climate and it's going to have, you know, long-term effects on the climate There's yes, but the pollution is having a lot of other effects on a lot of other things too. And you don't want to take your eye off that ball, you know? Um, And we need to be looking at ways of creating cultures, economies, and systems of transition that are able to transition with massive changes in the landscape, you know, and in the climate, because it's not just the climate, you know, these coastlines are going to change uh, dramatically um, and sooner than people think, because all they're doing with the climate models is projecting how much sea levels are gonna rise. What they're not looking at is is sand mining, which, oh no, sorry, that's an unrelated, uh, that's in someone else's discipline, That's in a silo over there. We're not looking at sand and mining here. We're looking at... Whoa, 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 back it up. That's the biggest resource on the planet right now that's being used because of the sustainable doubling of all these infrastructure projects that are rolling out like crazy everywhere as part of the quantitative easing of things to try and keep the construction industry going, to try and keep the economy going, and to try and keep doubling this population so that we can maintain somebody else's economic system. Ah, it's insane. So the sand is being all used up and terrestrial sources of sand are gone. So they're they're having to dredge it out of the ocean now along the coastline. So you end up with these massive holes in the seabed and they don't just stay there like that. You know, they get filled with sand that should be going elsewhere along the coast. And so that sand isn't deposited on beaches or you get massive slumps. You know where the entire seabed slumps into that hole, and what happens is the coastline erodes and falls into it. So we're going to find that the coastline sinks faster than the the, the sea level rises. You know these are um these are related issues. If we're looking at okay, well how <laughs> since we've got most of the population clustered around the the coastline uh, because the culture is so terrified of this continent. <laughs> um and so terrified of a landscape that they don't understand that they're huddled along the beach um you know there's there's a lot that needs to change um, there's a lot of thinking that needs that needs doing and you know, a lot of um, action too a lot of practical action uh, particularly of, of just oh' of just just understanding the landscape and becoming part of the landscape again. Um, yes it's important to return Land to Aboriginal people, but equally as important is that we need to return all humans to the land. People need to once again become, you know, a um, a being, a, a species that has a habitat and that is embedded in that habitat and is responsive to changes in that habitat, because that habitat's going to be changing frequently and rapidly. Um, as this global meta-crisis continues to unfold, a crisis of, of climate slash weather, a crisis of, um, of uh, toxicity and massive uh, species extinction and elimination of a biosphere um, in response to a thousand different things, economic crises, social crises, uh, all kinds of upheavals. And we're going to have to... Um, tap back into our natural gift of our species as the custodial species Uh, which is adaptation.
0: I want to talk a little bit about um, going back to talking about engagement. um, I want to talk about this process of respect, connect, reflect, direct um, that you talk about in the book. Um, In the book you talk about how when engaging with Indigenous people, white people will often do that process in reverse. Um, Do you think that's at the heart of getting engagement right, this process of um, respect, connect, reflect, direct?
1: Um, yeah, but I, I, I should, I should. Um, I, I've just got to get on onto the the language there, you know, of white people. You know, I'm not talking about white people like people with fair skin, um, you know, like a, a lot of settlers and an increasingly number of uh, of settlers who are, you know, ethnically Anglo, the sort of uh, the settler civilising you know, command and control sort of discourses that are running our lives, Um, you know, many, if not most of them uh, do not have white skin. So (laughs) this is what multiculturalism is. It's everybody being Anglo, no matter what color you are. Um, So when we refer to white people, I guess if you want to use that term, it's not talking about people with pale skin, which is probably half the Aboriginal population at the moment um would be people with pale skin um <laughs> so yeah that that doesn't really work as a as a terminology anymore um so yeah getting that straight again uh what's the question uh white people are doing what
0: reversing Oh the yeah process. they're reversing
1: that process of um respect connect reflect direct instead they come in and they direct and then it fails so they reflect and they gather their data and l- examine their metrics and and then they realize that they probably should have formed relationships and so then they connect and then, um, uh, yeah, so they make, through those connections, they end up finally arriving at respect just as the um, program winds up and they fly out. Um, yeah, that, that's, um, that, that seems to have been an observation that, um, that a lot of people are, yeah, finding is striking a chord of truth uh, with what they're seeing when they look out at the world a reversal of that process, you know, starting with respect is uh, is probably the best way to go.
0: And how would you like people to use Sandtalk? Talk?
1: Any way they like. The idea is that it's just a yarn and it's it's different for everybody. Uh, I haven't... I have, I've not spoken to two different people who had the same experience of reading it. So, yeah, I think it's a just a dialogic process of engagement and a lot of people come out of that with... Um, really out of the box disruptive innovations and I'm just seeing hundreds and hundreds of these things people who've started up um, uh, different kind of action groups, um, uh, different kinds of not-for-profit organizations or they've just changed their organization's structure you know based on the not based on the ideas in the book like they're copying it but based on the thinking that they've done as a result of engaging in that dialogue, which is, I think is really important distinction. You know, if anybody's just taking ideas out of my book and, um, and just applying them as they are, then they're probably not really engaging with it properly. Uh, but yeah, most people are just coming up with exciting things. I, I had a, a climate scientist contact me and say she's been sitting on a, a bunch of data for years and she couldn't figure out how to do the analysis of it properly, but then beyond that, even couldn't figure out how, even if she did manage to analyze it, how she could present that in a way that people would understand. And she just, um, she found after she read my book that she was able, she just woke up in the middle of the night one night and went, oh, there it is, that's the solution. And she found the solution and was able to use that data. Um, There's been a lot of people from a lot of different fields you know, from um, economics to social work to childcare to almost anything, who've, um, you know, found themselves stimulated to, to create these amazing innovations uh, just out of nowhere and not by going by the book, but still with
0: the book, I guess. Well, I'm a big fan of the book and thank you so much for chatting with me today, Tyson.
1: Yeah, no worries. Thank you.
0: That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at Geographic.com, or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to Geographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. Until next time.